When the world has got you down Alzheimer's sucks. It's an equal opportunity disease that chips away at everything we hold dear. And to date, there's no cure. So until there is, we continue to fight with the most powerful tool in our arsenal, love. This is Love Conquers Alls, a real and really positive podcast that takes a deep dive into everything Alzheimer's, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And now, here are your hosts, Susie Singer-Carter and me, Don Priest. Hello, everybody. I'm Susie Singer-Carter. And I'm Don Priest, and this is Love Conquers Alls. Hello, Susan. Hi, Donald. What's up? How are you? So what's happening? Uh, a lot of good things are happening in for our other podcast, I Love Lucifer. And yes. I'm excited about that. So stay tuned for some announcements for season two. And um, one thing is I'm, I'm going to say my mom is in the hospital. She's been in the hospital for going on uh, t- 10 days now. Almost two weeks, yeah. Yeah, almost yeah. two weeks. So, which is pretty much a direct cause of the issue that we're going to talk about today and um, amongst other things. So we have a really wonderful guest today, Dawn, that I met once again on social media and now is a part of my community and I'm a part of her community. And um, her name is Jennifer Lagerman. She's only 23 years old. And, and every time she writes something about caregiving or aging and embracing aging, in a, in, a, in a dignified, healthy way. I'm blown away because she has such uh, insight and depth and um, soul. And she is, she just is such a great role model for her generation, which I'm not quite sure if it's, I think it's Gen X. No, and Gen Z. This is a fresh perspective and just the face of, of our, of the new generation coming up. And I just wanted to to introduce everybody to her, if you don't know her already, because she's going to be such a force in our community, and I, I just have so much respect for her. Um, Jen was a family caregiver who spent most of her career in private duty home care industry, in scheduling and intake coordinator, and she's currently a copywriter, journalist, and researcher in the caregiving and aging space, and soon to be my um, my coalition partner because we're gonna we're gonna ban our together and uh, make some noise and make some change. And I'm very excited about Time that. Time to storm so. Washington. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So without uh, further ado, please welcome Jennifer Lagerman. <laughs> Hello, Jen. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, my gosh. So happy to have thank you, you for here. Thank, thank you, you for coming and, and spending your Saturday morning with us. You're 23 years old. I don't understand how you are such a force in this community, but I'm so happy that you are. You are just such a special human being. And um, I just want to tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this whole arena and community of of aging and caregiving. Sure. Um, When I was 12, my maternal grandmother uh, started to need care. She had recovered from a stroke. She started having signs of dementia and was recovering from cancer all around the same time. And she needed like companionship, um, socialization. She didn't need a whole ton of care for me in the beginning, but that's when I first started um, caregiving. And um, she lived with my family. She was a part of my family structure 
And that's what I thought a nuclear family was as far as I was concerned in my household. And having that component when I was growing up, she had been the one raising me because both my parents worked during the day. So when I was at home, she was always the one that was making me my lunches and stuff. So I was used to having her as my main source of parenting. And uh, that component really helped me to have an appreciation for older adults and aging. And so when I um, started school, I was a biology major going on a pre-med track. I wanted to be a geneticist. And then um, she passed away my first semester of college, and it really shook me in my background. It really made me rethink where I wanted to go in life, how I was going to get there, and the sciences weren't really doing it for me. I wanted to do something more um, impactful and something that gave back to my community, which I felt in caregiving I could do, but I was going to do that through writing because I'd written a lot as a kid, and I was like, I want to do this professionally. I want to upgrade it from a hobby to a career. And so I was like, well, what do I need to write about? Well, what do I know? Caregiving and, you know, seniors, older adults, stuff like that. So that's how I kind of found my way into the industry. Before she passed, was she ill? Were you actively caregiving for her or was mm -hmm. it uh, was it just something that that came on suddenly? Yeah, she slowly declined over those seven years I took care of her. Um, it was just a little bit every here and there in the beginning. And then toward the end, we had home health coming in. We had hospice coming in. And my grandma was super feisty at 95, so even in getting her in the bath, it took two of us. So it was her aide and me. We would get her in the shower, but as soon as she got in the shower, though, she would start cleaning herself. She would help out. It was just a matter of getting her into the shower. That was the problem. But she was such a force. And then um, toward the end, she became bed-bound, so it became more of sponge baths. But we had a really fantastic hospice aide that was unlike any of the other ones that we had. We always loved having her come over. She would get my grandma out of bed, put her in her wheelchair. We built a ramp and she would wheel her outside. She'd pick a flower for her and come inside and make her lunch. It was like the most impactful thing ever. And it really put a seed in my head. I was like, ooh, I really want to be a caregiver. Despite the fact that most people probably don't ever want to be a caregiver <laughs> for whatever reason, she really made me feel like, she genuinely loves my grandma, and she didn't speak any English, so she talked to her like a friend. She really just asked, like, um, I remember my husband came over, and we were just dating at the time, not really with titles or anything, but she was like, look, your grandson and granddaughter are here. And it kind of, we looked at each other, we're like, oh. And it was just a really funny moment, you know, between the four of us. So I was like, she doesn't know that we're together. And I just thought it was the funniest thing that she tried to be so involved in our lives and was really a, a family caretaker. She wasn't just right. taking care of my grandma. She was really taking care of our whole family. I think that that observation is, is, is on point because I think, you know, like my mom's caregiver who was really became part of our family. And, and, at, and as my mom's disease progressed, she became her best friend. She was like, this is my best friend. You know, you're my best friend. What are you talking about? You know, and, and yeah. two, two disparate, more disparate people there weren't, right? There wasn't. And, there, and yet, you know, there, the love was so palpable and respect. And um, I, think, I think that kind of um, frames those, kind, those kinds of caregivers that are the, really the best caregivers. They really, they really just get into the family and, and become that. I think that's, that's, 
That is the core thing. And one other thing I wanted to touch on is that you, you decided you wanted to become a caregiver. And Lisa Gibbons, when I interviewed her, she said, it's funny, nobody, nobody grows up as a little kid and says, oh, I, I, when I get big, I want to be a caregiver. There's no caregiver Barbies. Well, you are <laughs> caregiver Barbie. That's what you are. You really are. I mean, tell me a little bit about your relationship with your grandma, because it sounds like you had such a, a close relationship. And I think that obviously informed how you look at the world. And, and are you, and also what is your, what's your cultural background? Because I always think that that is a part of it too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I was raised in a Vietnamese Chinese household. Um, so that really informed um, my mom's parenting structure, how my grandmother was, because she wanted to be the doting, loving grandmother who gave everything that she could to her grandchild. And um, my mom was very strict with me. And that was um, something that kind of clashed between us as um, my grandmother needed more long-term care. Um, I wanted to get my grandmother diagnosed and it wasn't within her belief system to get her diagnosed. It was a part of the natural aging process as many people think about. And um, when it came to culture, um, a lot of the healing process was um, really impactful for me. Like whenever I was sick, I really enjoyed being home because my grandmother took care of me. She would take a dog tag and rub it on my back and um, it would release all the hot air stored within my body and it would just release all of that heat. And that was a part of our holistic wellness, like, you know, like Chinese acupuncture and mm -hmm. holistic medicine. They practiced that in our household. It was very interesting to see these things unfold. Like she would take a boiled egg right out of the pot and roll it on my back when I was sick. And then she'd take a knife, cut it open, and you'd see green spots in it, the bacteria that came out. And what? it's like fake or pseudoscience, but I'm like, well, how, how else would those green things have gotten into the yolk of the egg? You know what I mean? It's one of those weird Amazing. things. That, okay, um, but now I have to try this. <laughs> we have to try <laughs> this. If you have a cold or something like that, try it. And like, um, if you have like a, um, a dog tag or something similar, put some vapor up on your back and rub from the center out in lines, kind of like tiger stripes. I'll send you a sure. link later to show you what it looks like. But yeah, it's super cool. It helps to release the hot air from inside your body when you have like a fever. So it helps right. to cool your body down from the inside out. Wow. That's make, that's interesting. I mean, and it's also interesting in the Asian community that there is a lot of reverence to the elder generation, which is different than in American sure. families. Our, our society is just so uh, resistant to aging. So there's mm -hmm. no, there's no respect for it. It's, it's, it's um, marginalized and minimalized and, you know, tucked away. And I, I think, you know, so for that, it's, it's, for that, a part of your culture is 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 so beautiful and needs to be shared more and then on the other hand and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i believe there's a lot of um pride in in the asian community and a lot of um resistance to like you said your mom having your grandma being diagnosed mm -hmm. because there's 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 a, a a sort of a shame or or uh, a pride issue about identifying yourself that way. Yeah, no, that's right. I think it's a lot of it's pride. And um, it was very interesting looking back the different ways that my family and I 
kind of behaved. Because, like, I was born in Massachusetts, um, so I was, you know, American and still am. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my, my mom, her process was very different. She subscribes to Buddhism. And it was uh, when, when we were grieving, when my grandmother passed away, uh, my mom said, don't cry. You're holding her back from her next life. And I was just like, I don't know how to not do that. You know, it was just my instant reaction. And I was like, I can't help it. it it's coming out now. And um, that was my way of grieving. And I, I wrote her letters. I wrote my grandmother letters on my laptop um, each day after she passed. Just like, hey, I miss you so much. And it was just my way of grieving. Because our I didn't know at the time that you were supposed to get um, bereavement support through your hospice. Um, and we didn't get that. And mm. luckily enough, I was in college, so I went to my grief counselor um, to help me out there. And I had a biology test the day after my grandmother passed away, and I, I ended up having to take it because they wouldn't give me an extension. Oh, my but gosh. It was so tough for me. Like, it was a really rough, rough time. And my husband and I had only been together for a couple months. So, like, the, the bulk of our relationship has been post-grandma, which Aww. is really interesting because... Uh, I don't know. I'm a different person now than I was before. I mean, because you're younger, you have, you know, a social circle, you have friends uh, mm -hmm. who are probably not going through the same thing you're going through. Uh, what was, how, how did they see what you were doing? Were, were they supportive of it or going like, hey, come on, no, well, let's just go, you know, go to the movies or something. What was, what was their reaction? Funny enough, I never told anybody outside of my social circle what I was doing. It wasn't something I talked about. Um, I spent a lot of time at school to kind of escape those responsibilities, to you know, like join honors band, to be part of the robotics team, math team. I was on every team that you could possibly be on. I was in drama club. I was in everything to try and you know, kind of my respite was going to after school activities, right? And enjoying time with my peers. I didn't really talk about caregiving, just because that was my family thing, and I didn't really know how to talk about it. I didn't know. I was a caregiver. I didn't know all these terms and the industry terms, the jargon. I didn't really know any of that. I was just, you know, a grandkid doing her thing, you know? I didn't really right. talk about it in the context of caregiving until I was applying for jobs. And I was like, oh, caregiver, what's that? Then I read the job description. I was like, oh, I've done that. And so <laughs> I started working as a caregiver after that. And that's how I got into home care. But other than that, I really did not know I was a caregiver and I, didn't, I couldn't even remember being asked to do this. I feel like it was kind of like a, just kind of swept under the rug. Now she's coming home from the hospital. Now we do this. It was very seamless. Right. But did your, did your parents like ask you to do it? Or did they say, this is something that you just as a family, this is what we do? Or did it just come naturally? It, it kind of came naturally. I don't remember being asked, and I feel like I just kind of shadowed my mom in that sense and just kind of wanted to help out and fill in where she couldn't because she worked during the day. So during the summers when I wasn't in school, I was at home, and whenever my uncle, who would be there when I was in school, I would relieve him when I'd get off, off the bus. It was a team effort. It's so interesting. <laughs> Did you ever... You know, and I know how much you love your grandma because I feel it and hear it and you've talked about it with me before. And so that said, did you ever feel resentment when you would come home and go, gosh, I just want to be a 17-year-old or yes. I just want to go, yes, okay. Yeah, because that's yeah. normal, right? 
Yeah, I felt a lot of that, um, especially when I got into college. I was like, I feel like I haven't gotten to complete my childhood yet. Now I'm, you know, in college with all of my peers, and I don't feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. I used college as an opportunity to really just let loose and have fun, and I felt like I felt bad for having fun. I really didn't feel like I was able to, or you know, felt it didn't feel right having fun. And um, I kind of used it as an opportunity to complete my childhood, in a sense. It's, hmm. Yeah, it's a thing that we talk about a lot, which is the guilt of taking care of yourself and mm-hmm. realizing that the you know it's it's really counterintuitive. By taking care of yourself, you're able to take care of them better. Uh, you're healthier. Exactly. And it's hard to come to terms with that, though. That's like, how can I be having fun when she's lying there? You know, it's 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 a, such a struggle. And mm-hmm. did you it, ever did you ever come to terms with it, or was it after that you came to it terms? It was after, with it? and I think it wasn't so much my my grandmother as it was my mom as a gatekeeper. Like I would be like, can I go to like you know my uh, junior prom? I'm like, no, you have to be home. Because mm. what if something happens? You know what I mean? It wasn't so much my grandmother holding me back. It was more of my mom. I feel like it was a lot of uh, fear. She didn't know what was going on. She didn't really have as strong of a command of English as I did. And I was always right. um, going to the car dealership with her to make sure that the contracts read legitimately. And um, I went to every appointment with my grandmother to make sure that I could communicate with her physicians in the way that we needed to be communicated about and with make sure that the right prescriptions were there and kind of being her advocate. So there was a lot of elements that came into it as well, the translation part, because we spoke um, the southern dialect of Vietnamese and most medical interpreters in like hospitals and dentist places only spoke the northern dialect, so it created that tension of um, language. Have you seen the movie Coda? I have not. What's it about? Okay. It's about it's about a it's a young girl who's part of a nuclear family. Her brother and her mom and her dad are all deaf, and it's you know it's based on a true story. and And she was born as a hear she could hear, so she became pretty much like the 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 ears for the family, the translator, the uh, and the family as a unit depended on her to where it impacted her life and made her feel guilty to want to pursue her life as an adult in the areas that she wanted to go, which was music of ironically, right? And, um, and you know, the, the, the pressure on her to, to stay with, within the family and be the one that negotiates, like even like what you're talking about with contracts, like she, they, they were fisher, fishermen and so th- she would have to go and, and you know, deal with the, the buyers and, and, and make sure that they were getting a good deal and they weren't <laughs> duping them, right? And, and the pressure that she went through, it, you know, happens a lot. I mean, that happens in families and you're, you really are, lived that. And looking back on it, for other, other young people in your position, what kind of perspective and that could you share that you've learned that might help somebody else that's in that position? Sure. Um, I would encourage people to be vocal about what they do. I never talked about this with anyone, and even knowing the symptoms I experienced as a caregiver, it wouldn't have been something I brought up in a physical exam with a doctor. Like if someone had been like, you know, are there any physical stressors going on in your life? Um, that could be, you know, contributing to your mental health. I would have said no. I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind. It wouldn't have been something I talked about. So I feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of people might be in a similar situation to not be so forthcoming with what they're doing inside and outside of 
caregiving, um, I would encourage you to be more vocal about it and to talk about it with your peers, your parents, maybe your school counselors, uh, maybe a teacher that you um, confide in with a lot of a lot of stuff. I had a couple of teachers that I was super close with in school, my band instructor especially. Um, he was a very um, instrumental part of how I developed through high school and really, he really pushed me and encouraged me and um, I explored different things. Like I was a flute player, um, but I also did vocals and he taught me how to do DJing. So that was very interesting. He also taught me how to do some basic drumming stuff. So it really just taught me to expand my skill set and to really be open. Oh, it's, it's so ama- great. Yeah. That's great. It's amazing that after all, because you did feel guilt and you did feel like you kind of had your childhood somewhat not taken away, but let's say stunted, uh, mm-hmm. that you chose to continue on in this field uh, because, I mean, there's something in it that, that talks to you. But, I mean, was there ever a point you just said, no, I just want to go go to Europe <laughs> and, and just do nothing uh, after That's all of that. Yeah, yeah. There was one time where, um, like, she has her meals on, had her meals on wheels come around, like, 8 a.m. every day during the week. And there was this one day during the summer, and I was like, oh, I got to make sure I wake up at 8. I didn't. And our aide came over and was like, where's lunch? And I opened the fridge, and I made her a bowl of rice with some veggies. And I was like... Why can't I just sleep in past 8 o'clock? Like, it was such a small thing that I felt super bad about. But I was also like, you know what? It's the summer. I'm out of school. I just want to enjoy the summer. And to do what every other kid does during the summer. You know, going to amusement parks. But then again, it was just me as an only child. So I had that going for me. um, Because I didn't have a lot of people to go with. Yeah, and that makes sense. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking how... You know, because I had a 16-year-old daughter that lived with me, my daughter, when my mom lived with us for a year. Mm-hmm. And I got a, um, quite a bit of, um, you know, negative feedback initially from some of my peers. Like, how can you bring your mom in? It's going to be so hard on your daughter. It's not fair. She's going through, you know, her own thing. And I, and I was like, maybe it's not fair. Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing, you know. And so I, one of my friends who's a doctor and an endocrinologist and very respected, and I said, you know, am I doing the wrong thing? What would you do? And she said, you couldn't be doing the better thing. You're doing such a good thing by role modeling this to your daughter. You're modeling allegiance and family love and, and, you know, accountability and all these things that are the good things. So at, and at the end of that year that my mom lived with me, my daughter said, I'm not ready for nanny to go. And, and it was a hard year. I mean, it was not easy. It was my mom being feisty like your grandma, feisty as hell, <laughs> knocking on our doors at three in the morning, you know, accusing us of stealing her jewelry when it was our earrings, right? And we, and we had to learn how to deal with it. But we are such better people for it, right? Absolutely. And 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 what would you say? So out of so you know we know the negatives, we mm-hmm. know how hard it is. What what are the positives, and what made you stay in it? And you know how would you, what what advice in that respect? What are the gifts that that you can share with your peers that may be going? You know, no, it's my life. They're old and they've had their life. How can you speak to that? Absolutely. Uh, my grandma was my absolute best friend. No matter how many best friends I may have gotten from school, she was absolutely my best friend. 
by far. We grew together so much. Like, there were times uh-huh. where I had sleepovers downstairs. We retrofitted our dining room next to the kitchen into her bedroom. And we had, like, a curtain and all set up for her. But there were times where I'd sleep downstairs with her and kind of have, like, a sleepover. We'd stay up all night. We'd play games. She had these hand games that um, they would do in Vietnam. You'd, like, put your hands together and you'd, like, kind of manipulate your fingers in such a way. And you'd ask someone to touch a finger and, like, is this your middle finger? And then you'd go, like, oh, yeah. It was a really fun, like, just, you know, fun games that we could play together. I'd play the piano and she'd listen. Um, we'd go on walks together to the park. Um, and it was really fun. We really did grow together. And She gave me my dark sense of humor. I know I got it from her. I remember there was one time I stubbed my knee on the corner of a table and I was sitting there like, oh my god, this hurts. And she just walked by with her walker and she started laughing. And <laughs> I, Right, and that's where I got it from. I was like, you know what, when I'm having a tough time, just channel your dark humor and the funnier side of it. Right. Well, humor is the best. Humor and music. So you're, you're on it. You got the music, you got the humor. You're good to go. You got your armor. <laughs> Absolutely. I had all of my armor. And what's also cool is caregiving for my grandmother also acted as a filter for uh, relationship candidates. Um, when I started hanging out with my husband, he came over to the house and it was, it took a lot. And I was like, you know what? He loves me. I love him. Why not? And you know, if it's not meant to be, it won't. And he came over, we were playing tarot cards. And um, my grandmother was getting personal care while we were doing this, and he, you know, just kind of smelled it like I did and kind of carried on. And it wasn't until like a couple months ago, he was like, you remember that? He was like, yeah, I smelled it. <laughs> and we were just laughing to ourselves, just like, you know, it made me a better CNA. Because I wasn't sure how I was going to handle all these things. And I was like, well, I'm used to, you know, being around the smells of, you know, what I would be interacting with. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. Like, you know, like pee and poop and all this. And a lot of people uh-huh. are like asking on these advice columns, put some vapor up on your nose. I'm like, ah. Once you've been doing it for a couple months, it really doesn't feel like anything. It's really not that big of a deal. Right, right. It did, you just sensitize. Yeah, we get very precious, you know, when we, you know, the way that we've socialized and we've, we've, um, We've, we've kind of compartmentalized ourselves away from anything that's natural. So, you know, it's like every, everything becomes um, uh, uh, insulting to our senses or insulting to our, you know, socialization. And, and, and we've really become bougie in that way, you know, to, for lack of a better word, right, mm-hmm. in terms of just natural things. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so... It is hard to embrace. I mean, even I have to admit, like, and it's interesting because when my mom became, you know, incontinent and I remember the first time I had, I, she was still mobile, but I still had to take her to the restroom and mm-hmm. help her. And, and it was like, it wasn't really what was happening. It was more about, I felt that her dignity, like she felt embarrassed or it was, mm-hmm. it was about me. How do I, I didn't know at that point how to make her feel okay about it mm-hmm. with, and so, you know, I, I had to learn that because that those are all those things are very delicate. And when you, you know, especially with your grandma or my mom, you, you want to respect them and give them their dignity. And the dignity is based on, you know, our social frames that have been put up, whether if you're Asian, you, there's different frames. If you're American, there's different frames. If you're 
you know, Indian, there's different frames, but they're nevertheless, there's frames that we look through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like they don't want you to, you know, feel the, the stigma of this, but you also don't want them to feel bad about, you know, what they're going through because it's natural. It's, it's okay. It's, you know, it's what's going on. You have to accept the reality of the situation and do what you can with it. A hundred percent. You decided, you know, basically you, you, you were caregiving and didn't even know you were a caregiver, mm-hmm. you, but something about it talked to you and said, okay, so after, after she passed, you said, I want to continue doing this. Mm-hmm. And as you've done it, what are the similarities and differences between caregiving for somebody who is your family, who is your best friend and somebody who is just, you know, a person that you're doing it for be, because that's your job now? Sure. Um, you don't feel the same uh, knowledge because, like, I grew up with my grandma, so I knew everything that made her tick. I knew all of her patterns. I knew how she was and how to how to react with her or how to respond to something. But when you're in someone else's house, it's hard to know how they react. Also, you have to navigate their house, like where their trash cans are, where their spoons are, how they like their coffee, how they like their cereal. It's stuff you have to learn, such a learning curve, whereas with family, you already know everything. You don't need to care plan because you've already done the care planning mentally. You just don't have it on paper. Um, And then when you work at a home care agency or a facility, they give you a care plan, a toilet twice, you know, every two hours or something like that, your regular schedule. And then you have to learn their routine. Like I had a lady that um, lived in a community who was very particular about her bedtime routine. She had like six pillows. She had a paralyzed right arm, so we had to make sure that we um, put on and took off her clothing, bearing that in mind. And she had a very particular um, routine with her hair and pinning it up a certain way. And she was like, oh, you did it like that? And then uh, she had this um, essential oil diffuser that had to be filled up. She had very particular routines about how her nighttime was. So it was, there's a lot of a learning curve, but I think the hardest part is developing rapport. Because you don't know what they like, what makes them tick, if they want a talker, if they want someone quiet to just come in, do what they need to do and get out. It's hard to read people, and that's not what's in care plans. It's about what you need to get done, what I need to do for them, then you just leave. Answer their call. Right, right, right. Leave. And with your family, you have a haiku. You have a, you know, you have your, your shorthand. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, look at, I can look in my mom's eyes and go, I know it, I know. I know, because yep. I can know what she's thinking, right? Exactly. Yep. Uh, I do. And, you know, and I, I, I mean, I, I've not been a caregiver other than for my children to, you know, a, a stranger, but I do relate in some way that when I would visit my mom at assisted living, I got to know a lot of the, the other residents really, really well mm-hmm. and um, become you know, became really close to them and look forward to seeing them and, and start to, started to really you know, know them and I could make them laugh and I could make that, you know, we really had relationships. And so, you know, it, in those, and that is the most important part is the, the, the socialization, the, that, that, that is key. And that's what's happening now with COVID because there's not enough socialization and people mm-hmm. are isolated in, in the nursing homes in skilled nursing homes. And it's, um, that, that, that is the tragedy. Absolutely. Yeah. There's not enough staff, but the thing is, there's not a caregiver shortage, in my opinion. There's a shortage of employers willing to pay them appropriately and give them the benefits and the culture that they need to succeed. And the other side of that is 
There are some places that have caregivers that do activities, caregivers that help with cooking. And they do like the whole operation of it. That way you can get to know your residents better. Because when you're just coming in and giving them a shower and leaving, you don't really get to develop any relationship with them. There's no time because you're going from room to room. Whereas if you were doing all of these things, you'd be the one cooking their meals. You know their preferences. If they're you know having a rough day, you know you can get them a, a cookie and it'll make them feel better. Um, like If you're doing all of those things for those residents and you have a super low ratio of residents you have to take care of, you can develop better relationships with them. It's so nice and, seeing those relationships and, unfold. And that's what that's what makes your being a caregiver. That's what that's what gives you the kind of um, feedback and and you know joy in your work, right? So, if I mean you're going to do better if you're enjoying your work. If you're just there doing a job, you're going to be a terrible caregiver, and you're and the person you're caring for is it's going to be a bad experience at the you know if it, it just will be because we're dealing with people we're not dealing with with cogs and right. and you and know right we're too absolutely yeah absolutely so if you're in there and you're resenting your job because you're not pay paid well or you're you're harried because you can't survive on eight dollars an hour mm -hmm. and the agency is taking a percentage of that i mean it's it's really, it's really shameful. Yeah. So it really is. And, and this kind of career in particular demands that you create a relationship with the, with the people you're working with. It demands it. I mean, can you imagine if you went to a dentist and he went and he just didn't say a word to you, just you got in the chair, they don't say, oh, I mean, there's no rapport. Yeah. Why am I letting this stranger put his hands in my mouth or her hands in my mouth? I mean, there's something about dealing with people. You have to have a relationship. And when you're dealing with people that are elderly or, and, and especially dementia and Alzheimer's, it takes the time it takes and it takes the steps that it takes and it may take those steps over and over and over and and if that's what the job description is then that's what it is but we have to be able to support that absolutely and there's such a problem when it comes to memory care with the turnover of staff is that you need that consistency they need to see the same people every day or at least on a regular basis we have such you know, a revolving door of caregivers, it's so hard for people to adjust. And I think another important part is keeping couples together. I used to work at a assisted living and memory care place where the wife started to, you know, advance in her condition needed to be moved over to memory care. And her husband was still over in assisted living and they wouldn't let him move over. And I feel like that really contributed to her decline because why else do you think she's saying, I want to go home mm -hmm. or I need to see my husband? Because, you know, they should be together. And I think that separation uh -huh. is so uh, cruel to do when it comes to, you know, spouses who have been married for, you know, yeah, however many years. for both, yeah. It's cruel. It's absolutely cruel. Again, using my mom as, a, as an example, when the first time they moved into assisted living, my mom had, be, you know, begun her journey with Alzheimer's. And then my stepdad, who was 12 years older, and her best friend, you know, like they were just, you know, inseparable, he, he was starting to decline physically. He couldn't hear, you know, they, he couldn't see that well. He couldn't walk that well. My mom was physically perfect. So together they made almost a, a, a full human, <laughs> you know, and they, yeah. but they loved, they loved each other, you know, even though they were hilarious. I wrote a series, Don and I wrote a, a TV series based on them because they just cracked. I mean, literally, you know, the two of them together were just crazy, but, um, you know, <laughs> they, they, 
they didn't have a memory care unit at this assisted living. It was really lightly assisted. And mm -hmm. I, we went at my family and I went in there and just said, we can't separate them. And, mm -hmm. you know, and he will be her memory and she will be his eyes and ears. So can you please take them together? And they did. Good. Good. They yeah. did. You have to ask. And <laughs> you got to speak. You have to ask. But <laughs> and... you're so right because I, I think my mom, well, I mean, I think that would have been the decline. I mean, she would have declined so quickly because of that because she was so attached to him and he was attached to her. Just going back to what makes a great caregiver and some of that is a, you know, connecting with the person you're caring for. How do you balance that and becoming too emotionally attached? Because you know, eventually it's, you know, it's, it's going, or do you, do you just say, you know what, that's the way it is. I'm, I'm not going to prevent myself from becoming emotionally attached to this person. Well, sure. Um, there's a term for this. I think it's compassionate detachment. And, um, you try to do your best emotionally to bond with this person, to develop that rapport, but to not go too deeply into other matters that may cause you to, you know, get too emotionally attached. So what I tried to do was to make the best day for this person without giving away too much of myself because that would, you know, take from me and from what I was going home with. And I think a lot of it is self-care, taking care of yourself, finding your hobbies, having your, you know, circle of support that really gives you, you know, fills you back up at the end of the day, you know, just debriefing. And I think having a, a way to talk about things at work is a really helpful way. Like um, when I worked in home care as an administrator, it was terribly taxing on me um, dealing with, because I was the one that picked up the phones. And so whether it was a complaint about a caregiver, a complaint about a client, I heard everything. And right. when you're trying to schedule shifts, meaning you're trying to get the the client and caregiver compatibility down to a science, it made it so tough to want to do my job. But I did it because of the clients and make sure they get care and to help the caregivers get hours. You know, that's what kept me going. But at the end of the day, it was so taxing on me. I wish I would have had like an outlet with my supervisors, my peers, just to vent at the end of the day. You know, it doesn't even have to be, you know, with names, just saying like, you know, today was really tough. You know, I wish I could have filled that other shift with the other caregiver if they hadn't call called in to complain about something. And I think that really resonates throughout the whole healthcare industries, not having a way to vent your concerns about your day because it's not a part of your, uh, your clocked in shift. That's not a part of it. And You're it should be right. Morning on how things went physically, things that you can observe, but your personal experience isn't a part of, you know, your shift. It's something that you deal with outside of work and it shouldn't have. And it should, be, it should be with any job that's stressful, like, and like our first responders and things like that. We had this guest on a couple of weeks ago who wrote a book. He's a, uh, Alzheimer's researcher and also wrote a book called forgetting the, um, uh, benefits of not remembering and, and, um, Scott Small. And he was, Oh, thank you. I mean, we, he's just an extraordinary guy. But you know, he talked about a lot of his of his research was around PTSD, and and he used himself as, as an example. When he was in the army in Israel, at nineteen, he saw horrendous things, as did everyone else in his troop. And he, but when they were released, they didn't just release him home and back to normal life. They released him to that was still part of their of their service, which was to. 
to to have that debriefing, to have that cathartic socialization where, and he said, we literally like, you know, we sat around, we drank, we, we said, we talked, we had macabre jokes, dark humor, the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we got it out of our system and none of mm-hmm. us had PTSD. And he said, and that's not an, that's not anecdotal. That is science. Absolutely. Yeah. You need that. That's so yeah, nice. I mean, yeah, I mean, most psychiatrists go to psychiatrists or psychologists go to psychologists because they need to, if you keep everything in that you just experienced and have no outlet for it, it's going to build up and it's going to come out in some way that's not healthy. So do you see a solution for that? Do you see having uh, a counselor or somebody that people can go and caregivers can go and download? Uh, because I don't know if that exists anywhere. Absolutely. And I think that's so important. Um, I'm doing some personal research on the symptoms and um, effects that people have had when caregiving. And uh, most people that I've surveyed experience 11 to 15 symptoms as a result of their caregiving, whether it's anxiety, depression, weight loss, weight gain, so many different things come from caregiving. And Mm -hmm. the goal of the research is to make caregiving a CPT code or, you know, something in the diagnosis manuals, because usually when it comes to caregiving, it's coaching a caregiver on treatment or for their care recipient. It's not for the right. caregiver. So the goal of that is to make sure that providers understand that caregivers are not just um, caregivers to their care recipient. They are patients within their own right and deserve to be cared for and treated just as their care recipient does. Yeah. And that's the goal of that, to help with compensation as well. Like, you know, those mesothelioma commercials. I want caregiving to be something like that. Like, have you ever been a caregiver? You may be entitled to compensation. Because it's going to well, be difficult yeah. to make political and governmental change in terms of caregiver compensation. I feel like it's going to be very, very uh, a long process if, if it does ever happen. So I feel like if we can get grants or something put together as like a pile of money for caregivers to pull from, I think that may be a better uh, short-term approach. I think all the all the above. I think we need to do, you know, just go out and bang the drums and do that. Do all of those things because you know, look at I'm I in from, even in the entertainment industry, you know, there's there's like Screen Actors Guild has put together funds for emergency funds and they and they're mm-hmm. able to do that to support you know, our colleagues and it, and they, and during, during the uh, pandemic and also before that there was a, when we were on strike the writers, they, you know, the Screen Actors Guild throws a big net of, of financial help and assistance, you know, just money that they, that they raise and, and bring to the members of our, of our community. And we need to do that. Even if we started there where the community supports the community and, and, um, you know, and, and, and it's interesting, I was just reading Don last night, a, a email I got from the Jewish home, which is where my mom is at. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, extremely, they have a, it's one of the best facilities. They have a high ratio of CNAs to residents, five to five residents to one CNA. Obviously that's, it's less now because of COVID, because of Omicron, but they're, they've suffered so much because of this Mm-hmm. crisis that we've been in that the you know they wrote out a, a, they wrote an email that came out a couple of days ago that was basically we will not be able to take care of your family members if we're not financially supported 70 percent of their residents are are subsidized by medicaid and it's and mm-hmm. they can't do it they can't there's not enough money so 
that's a that's that's a crisis with a capital crisis because that if we if we don't have facilities to take care of our elders we're going to implode like society will i mean it's it's there, we have a huge huge generation of senior citizens absolutely and i that think it's a really big problem like in missouri and here in kansas a lot of nursing homes have closed for various reasons mostly staffing related vaccine mandate related um it's not sustainable to be in long-term care right now unfortunately you know, with, the, with the current state of affairs and it really underscores the importance of um, family caregivers because who else is going to be taking care of them in in the event that a nursing home closes they say that they have to find um, a place for the older adult to go to but think about this you did the research to find a high quality place for your loved one to move to it, that doesn't go the same way when an administrator is looking for your next place they don't have that compassion. Right. They don't have that, oh, well, this person wants X, Y, Z features in their nursing home or their next place. Let me make sure I keep those in mind. They don't have those uh, factors at the top of their mind. Or, They're just trying to get rid of motivations. Things. They just want to find a bed, maybe, or if exactly. If that. To add on to that, a lot, of, a lot of people don't have advocates. They don't have personal advocates. So what what happens to those people you know who just by the you know the however their life is played out they're they're the last one left in their tribe right. who takes care of them and who advocates for them and if we don't have caring caregivers that will you know be be a surrogate family member for them what's the point of keeping people alive physically i have a big problem with that mm -hmm. that yeah. that feels tor that feels like torture for me that feels like you know it's purgatory. Yeah, absolutely. Or with people who don't speak English or, you know, they don't have staff that speak their language. Like I worked at a assisted living that um, had two Portuguese residents, a brother and sister. None of us spoke Portuguese. A lot of it was nonverbal communication. I tried to kind of um, hold up a chalkboard or, you know, bring two versions of a meal. Like, you know, which ones do you want? And it, it felt tough because they're not getting the full resident experience that they deserve you know, paying as much as they do to stay there and, you know, to have just a normal experience like every other resident there. I feel like they were really gypped right. in terms of that And experience. the same, same and with dementia. With dementia because <laughs> yeah, if, because if, they can't communicate. If you can't speak, like my mom's at the point where she can't really talk unless, you know, every once in a while I can get a nice sentence out of her and it's like, you know, sure. my joy. Yeah. yeah. But, but, um, you know, for the most part, she can't go, oh, you know, um, Donna, I'm really thirsty. Can you bring me some water? So instead, right. she ends up in the hospital because she's completely dehydrated because people mm -hmm. don't speak dementia. Nobody, yeah, you know, most people. It, it's it is a, a language. language in and of itself. And the healthcare system because operates in a different language, too. I'm sure because, Jennifer, I saw it over Zoom. I said it to the nurses. She looks dehydrated. And then when Don and not Don came to visit her the, the Saturday before she went into the hospital, we were both there, and I said she looks dehydrated. I went to tell the nurses, I think she's, you know, thirst. I, she needs water. She needs to yeah. be hydrated. That, that's because um, her regular nurses aren't there, or, or there's not enough of them. That's just due to the the situation now at right. that particular facility, which is amazing. There are not there are a lot of facilities that are not amazing, and right. they don't this know is their baseline. Be, 
and this is going to be the, the, the normal, whether there's uh, COVID or not. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, we have to get around that. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. <laughs> I mean, that's just resources that don't exist. Yeah, there are too many, you know, a, people who need care and not enough people who are able to provide it. And, you know, when it comes to people immigrating here, they might not come with the rest of their family. So when they age here, they might not have people to advocate for them to um, retrofit their home to make it safe to age in place. There are so many things that you know can be done, and what something I'm trying to advocate for is for home care agencies to start a family caregiver training program, which can help their their um, future clients stay in place until they're ready or you know come to terms with needing home care services because not everybody's ready when they find it. Like, oh, look, there's home care services, but you know my my loved one isn't ready to make that transition, so I can go to this agency, get educated on how I can provide care because not everybody is prepared to be a caregiver at any given time. And it's or not like able to, yeah. Or, or, take the time yeah. to train you on what you need to know as a family member. They just kind of, oh, well, we've got to send you home. We have a new admin. We've got to get in. You know what I mean? That's not their concern. Right. And so if they can get trained through a home care agency that has the time, because they're doing new caregiver orientations all the time. So if they can, you know, scoot a family member in there to observe, watch, learn new skills, by the time that they are looking for home care services, who do you think they're going to go to? Right. Or if that family member suddenly loses their job, gets laid off, who could potentially provide them with a job because of the existing skills that they have that they got from this home care agency? I think it's super yeah. helpful all around, and it will foster positive relationships in your community without having to actively market. Right, right. Because I remember when my parents were when my right before we put him into the first assisted living, there was a social worker that came because, you know, I guess by, by my, my mom's doctor reporting that she had, because you have to report when someone has mild, you know, cognitive disorder. And mm -hmm. um, they came and said, you have to have home care. Like you have to have, you cannot live. And if you don't, then you need to move into some sort of assisted living care. And there was, they gave us two choices. Because, you know, a lot of I, I, my stepdad was like, we don't need it. We're fine. We don't need it. You know, they get very, very indignant. And, it's, you know, it, 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 it becomes, you know, it's very difficult to embrace that, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so they were very resistant to it. Um, but it was just so, done so with such, without grace, the way it was presented to them, that it was, it's like, it's just, it's like, of course they're going to resist Mm -hmm. Of course, because right. it's not presented. Voices, I think, is disingenuous. Like, you know, yes. there are a lot of consumer-directed programs out there where you can select who you want to be as your caregiver, and they'll get paid through Medicaid. There are a lot of programs like that out there, and they, you know, you think they have at least one person that they trust to take care of them, even if it's on, like, a couple hours a day or a week basis just to kind of check in on them. Like, that's not your own. Those aren't your only two choices. Right, but that's what's given because it's the it's the uh, you know the, it's a profitable the, choice. Yes, it's a profitable choice because it takes less time, for one thing, right? And so, and it becomes what it did was like it made it so difficult for us as family members. You know, it became a very hard situation, and it made it a situation that is that is you know delicate, even harder. Because the way, right, the way it was presented, it becomes very unattractive 
to the persons that you're trying to entice, you know, entice and invoke right. this kind of move, change. You know you who know? you're talking to, you know, know how to, you know, approach Know your audience. <laughs> no. Is your priority to stay home or is your priority to age, you know, in a quality um, community in your area? Like it, it, there's a lot of things and a lot of factors that are important. Like is your food the culturally you know, appropriate food for you available in communities in your area outside of your home? Like what are your priorities? What's important to you? Because then that can help inform where you go next. And, you know, and the other issue is obviously is the cost of, of care. Sometimes you can have all the priorities you want. This is what I want. This is what I, but money says, yeah, but you're not going to get that. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this is where, you know, this is such a huge, you know, it's like, where does, where does government, where does society come in as a whole that will, and all of this, look, if we take care of everybody, it benefits everybody. Um, but, you know, though that, that, that's a huge question. It's a huge, and, and I think it's going to have to start with your generation, honestly, because <laughs> <laughs> the future, I mean, has to be taken care of now. So what can you, as somebody who's in this, in this uh, field and is so passionate about it, where do you see the possibilities as far as changing the face of, of caregiving for our society? I know it's a massive question, but maybe you have some <laughs> ideas on that. <laughs> sure. I have a couple. Um, I think really um, elevating the family caregiver role, really making sure that they get the support they need, the training they need, the... Um, community resources they need because not, not a lot of people are equipped and prepared to be a family caregiver. I don't think a lot of people ask if they're ready to be a family caregiver or what all they're actually agreeing to because if they knew what all they were agreeing to, they probably wouldn't do it. Um, or make sure that you're the right person. You know, it's okay to say no, but you know, who in your family or in your community that you know would be a good fit? Who knows your, your loved one enough to take care of them? Um, Making sure that people can get paid for the caregiving that they do, because um, so much of it is like a second shift or third shift for people, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make ends meet and to be able to afford, you know, most people are spending about $7,000 out of pocket each year on caregiving expenses. And that can put a dent in anybody's income, no matter how much you make. And I think right now, in terms of senior living, there's a lot of emphasis on luxury senior living communities. But the luxury senior living communities don't serve the bulk of the people who are going to be aging. And only about two to 3% of seniors end up living in a senior living community, but they come from all income backgrounds. And I feel like we're you know, really doing ourselves a disservice in putting so much emphasis on you know, the luxury upper, upper income um, tiers. We need to do more middle market and lower income levels to really serve, you know, all of our older adults evenly. I feel like there's such an emphasis that people put on these amenities and I feel like people are really losing touch with what really matters, which is the care, the staffing ratios, hiring enough caregivers. Nobody cares about your, you know, courtyard being, you know, (laughs) true or, you know, it's not going to be a pool that makes someone say, yes, I doubt, you know, these luxury, amenities aren't going to be the thing that makes someone choose a community over another. It's going to be the quality of customer service and the experience, the resident experience, also the caregiver's experience. Because if you're going through caregivers left and right, that should be an indicator of a community. You know, a lot of people don't 
ask about caregivers or talk to caregivers when they're doing a tour of community, and I feel like it's very indicative of how things are going to go. So I feel like there should be a lot of emphasis put on caregiver retention when it comes to senior care in general. Caregivers need to come first. Not that seniors and older adults are less important, but you can't take care of anyone unless you have a stellar workforce behind them. Amen. What should somebody? Yeah. What should somebody look for when they're going to look at a facility that's like, should I put my loved one here? What questions should they ask? What should they look for other than there's a great pool here? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, the individual's priorities yet again. Um, talking about like, you know, what's important to you? Is it the food? Is it the quality of the, the amenities. Some people want the amenities. Um, do they have um, multiple levels of care? Do I have to worry about moving if I start to decline? Um, I think the CCRCs have a good idea when it comes to offering multiple levels of care. That way you're not having to move everything, you know, super far away if you're moving somewhere else to receive care. Um, if there are other hospitals nearby or, you know, community resources nearby, like do you have to go a half hour from here to get to your local doctor? Um, I think, um, understanding their corporate leadership and their, their, um, executive team structure, what backgrounds they come from, because that, that can really drive the direction of a community. Um, you know, if someone comes from a senior living background, if they're coming straight from an MBA program, like, you know, what, what does their background look like? Their, um, staffing ratios Because when you're, when you're, um, working with eight residents in a shift, you know, that's one hour of care per person, but that's also not taking into account that you take a half hour lunch break, that you um, get pulled in for a meeting, that you're doing report and rounds at the beginning and end of each shift. So you're really not even getting the chance to provide eight hours of care when you're doing an eight hour shift. So that's, that's something that a lot of people don't think about. And that's something that you and I are discussing, which is about, you know, um, making state and um, national reg regulations for ratios of, of, of caregiver to patient, nurse to patient, because there is no regulation. And I really do think that all the problems start there. You know, the understaffing issue is a huge problem, and that's based on economy. And that's and so those are the things that we're going to talk about in a big way. and. We're gonna do. We're gonna make a coalition. We're make. We're we're creating a coalition, and I am. I'm pushing Jennifer to the front. I'm. She needs to be the face <laughs> of this because she is our future, and and she's a fantastic representative of our future. I just can't thank you enough, Jennifer, for everything that you're doing, and I'm so proud to be walk beside you and know you. And I just think you're extraordinary, and your grandma is so proud of you. And the, the love that you show and the, the heart and the empathy is just uh, fantastic. And I, I applaud you and I love you. And um, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you so and much Donna, for having me. Uh, oh, well. my pleasure. There will be, we'll be more. And watch this girl. She's going to be something special. What do we always say, Dawn? You know what we always say? And I think it's really important, and, it, and, it, and it's something that Jennifer, you know, just lived. And that was love is powerful. And does live. Love is contagious, and love conquers alls. And uh, we, we thank you all for, for joining us, and we can't wait to see you next time. <laughs>